Hi, welcome to my podcast, Mind Matters, a teen's journey to unravel Alzheimer's. I'm your host, Allison Chin. Here with me on this episode is Mitch Murdoch. Mitch is a graduate student in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. He earned a Bachelor in Science in Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology from Yale University. He works across the groups of Li Hui Tsai and Ed Boyden, developing and understanding new circuit-level strategies for confronting Alzheimer's disease. Hi, Mitch. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to neuroscience and why you decided on Alzheimer's research specifically? Yeah, so I am a postdoc in Li Wei Tsai's lab at the Pickauer Institute for Learning and Memory. I came here via um, a couple different experiences. I did my undergrad at Yale where I studied molecular biology and I worked in an RNA biochemistry lab. And when I graduated, I worked in a neuroscience lab at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. And it was in this lab that I first learned about the modern approaches to circuit neuroscience. And I was really excited about how we could understand the cellular and synaptic substrates of learning and memory. So when I started my PhD at MIT, I really wanted to use new techniques to understand how we could probe the cellular mechanisms of the brain. And I was particularly interested in studying an important clinical disorder because there's a large unmet need for many neurodegenerative and neuropsychiatric conditions. So when I rotated in Li Wei Tsai's lab, I was really excited about the science that was being conducted to confront dementia and aging. So what is it kind of like working in a research lab? Like, are there any things that people don't really think about that come along with um, just working in a research lab? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny because there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that maybe a lay person would not expect. And I certainly didn't know about research before I got into it. One thing is oftentimes when you read about research in the press, it seems like a very clean story. And you see uh, like a scientist had a hypothesis, uh, they tested the hypothesis and they got the result. And it seems very straightforward, but that's not how it goes in practice. Oftentimes there are stumbling blocks. We don't know exactly how to interpret our data. There are a lot of technical challenges, getting our assays to work correctly, and it can be very messy. So that's part of the fun of it because we get to figure out how to make sense of the data along the way and piece together ambiguous parts of a story. And that is probably one of my favorite parts of being a scientist, because it's really fun to chart these totally um, unlandscaped territories to figure out what we can figure out about the brain and how we can use it to help others. So that's one thing that I think the layperson might not understand about the grit of what it's like to work in a neuroscience lab. Yeah, I think I think it's always so cool to see how different people, especially people like scientists, are able to try and problem solve and just use different things at their disposal to try and figure out how to fix a problem. Like I did an internship with a professor at Harvard Med School, and it was always just so cool to see them all interacting and bouncing off ideas off of each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's actually one of the favorite things that I experienced in the SciLab, which is a pretty big lab, and people have a lot of different expertise that they bring to the table. So I have a background studying um, mouse biology, and so I use a couple different assays with mice. But other people in the lab come from it from a very intense genome architecture background. Mm. So it turns out that the way your DNA is arranged in the nucleus is really, really complicated. And there are a lot of really cool strategies that cells use to 
certain genes sort of in certain different geographic um, parts of a nucleus, mm. and those can go awry in neurodegenerative disorders. And then there's a whole other spectrum of the lab um, that is using a technique called induced pluripotent stem cells, where you mm. can take a skin sample from a patient and then program it into whatever cell type you want. And that's pretty cool because you can take patients with different kinds of Alzheimer's disease. So you can have the genetic background of certain subsets of disease states and then determine how those genetic factors are influencing distinct cell types. And when you put those different cell types together, you can try to make sense of what might be going uh, wrong in the brain. And so, like you said, having these different um, expertise uh, in the lab is really exciting to be able to think about different approaches to the same kind of problem. Yeah, I think that's also why I like neuroscience so much, because there's just so much intersectionality between different areas of science that like you just get exposed to a lot of cool techniques. Yeah, I totally agree. There's this annual conference called the Society for Neuroscience, um, and it is huge. I think there's like 30,000 people that yeah. attend it, and it's a huge spectrum of people doing new technique development um, and have lots of different interests and different uh, neurodegenerative, neuropsychiatric related diseases, and then of course all the different cell types in the brain. So it's amazing to have all these people come together. And like you said, it's very intersectional. So yeah, it seems that like nowadays there's a lot of research being done around Alzheimer's disease. So could you explain some of like the leading theories about the cause of Alzheimer's? Yeah, I think this is a great question because it's really exciting. I love thinking about the different theories that people have put um, forth. And I think that for every researcher you ask, there's going to be a different theory and trying to be holistic and fair about all these different approaches is, you know, one of the reasons it's exciting to study the disease right now, because there's so much that we don't know. Um, and, and at the same time, there's so much that we're learning that we can fit into a holistic picture. So one um, major theory about the progression of Alzheimer's is this molecule called amyloid beta. And the idea is this small peptide is accumulating in the brain and forming these dense plaques. Mm. And those are very toxic to neurons. And that is thought to contribute to neuronal death. And one of the reasons why this has been such a popular theory is because patients with what's called early onset Alzheimer's disease have oftentimes mutations in genes that are responsible for enzymes that are creating these amyloid particles. And um, that's not the full story because actually the vast majority of patients have what is considered sporadic late onset Alzheimer's disease. And yet even those patients still have these amyloid beta particles in the brain. So the amyloid theory or the amyloid cascade hypothesis is one very prominent aspect of Alzheimer's etiology. Mm -hmm. Another theory that I think is getting more uh, traction in the past few years is the immune system. How do immune cells influence brain health and how do immune-related mechanisms contribute to dysfunction? And one of the reasons this has popped out of us is because if we do what are called genome-wide association studies, where you take uh, many, many individuals and correlate what is different about their DNA and their possible mutations in specific genes with their likelihood of developing Alzheimer's, you can create risk scores for certain gene variants. And one of the gene types that seems to pop out are immune-related genes. And so there's been a huge field to look at the role of what are called microglia, which are the immune cells of the brain, and determining how do different genetic risk factors influence microglia to promote brain health. And then there's another aspect of the immune-related hypothesis, which is that maybe there are certain immune mechanisms that have been hijacked by neurons many, many years ago, and those are immune-related um, neuronal factors that are influencing synaptic plasticity and learning memory. 
So these are two prominent theories, and there's a lot of other players that are involved in this. Tau is a really important molecule that is important for the structural integrity of neurons. And when you have patients with Alzheimer's disease and look in their brains uh, in the postmortem cases, you often find hyperphosphorylated tau and these um, tau aggregates as well. So uh, those are important uh, pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. But since it's an end-stage disease, we need to understand how we can make sense of the decades that lead up to these uh, pathologies in the degenerating brain. Yeah, that's part of what makes it hard to like pinpoint something, right? Because there's like obviously the genetic component that could come into it. But then also for some people who don't have those Alzheimer's related genes, it's just basically trying to figure out what in their life could have led up to that. And it's just so hard. Yeah, the way I've been starting to think about it lately is that there's a spectrum of genetic factors and behavioral factors. And genetic factors, you can have protective variants and uh, deleterious variants. So we know a lot from those GWAS studies what might be deleterious variants. And it's equally interesting to understand maybe there are some individuals that have certain genetic predispositions to be able to not have Alzheimer's disease despite um, all these pathological hallmarks in the brain. And then the other spectrum are behavioral variants. And so we know there are some things that are really good for your brain, like it's really important to have sleep and healthy social relationships and to eat a generally healthy diet and to exercise. And then on the other spectrum, if you have things that are not uh, good for your brain, like if you don't exercise, if you're not sleeping well, if you have traumatic brain injury, those are all behavioral voices or uh, factors that can influence your likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. And so we think that there might be a convergence of these lifestyle behavioral choices or factors that converge with certain cellular pathways that are dictated by genetic predispositions. And then collectively, those are what are influencing the overall brain milieu. And there might be subsets of populations that have certain factors that make them um, manifest a certain subtype of dementia. And piecing out what is the cellular molecular components of those could give us new insight into how we can create new therapeutic strategies. Kind of on that note, there's currently no cure for Alzheimer's. So um, what makes Alzheimer's like such a complicated disease to cure? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I think one reason it's hard to find a cure for is because we don't have a great or a complete picture of the etiology of the disease. Because like we talked about, there are so many factors that are leading towards this end state. Um, a couple other factors that we didn't talk about that neuroscientists are beginning to appreciate more about brain health are the role of the vascular system, the role of the peripheral immune system, the role of the cerebrospinal fluid. All of these factors are really, really complicated and how they play a, a role in creating healthy brain rhythms is not completely understood. And since we don't have a handle on the basic biology, it's hard to really come up with new therapeutic approaches. The other thing I think that makes it difficult is because it's a pretty heterogeneous disease. And since it's unfortunately so common, there are a lot of different ways it can present. Maybe clinically it presents similarly, but maybe the biological underpinnings of those clinical dysfunctions are unique to certain patient populations. So that's why in clinical trials, it can be really important to think about what kind of patients were selected for certain clinical trials. And, you know, some patients may or may not be more likely to respond to certain drug uh, targets. Yeah, I think it's always a very interesting thing to think about that a lot of times, like as a lay person, we don't really consider things like how the sample size or like what type of population is being selected impact results and stuff like that because of just different components depending on like their biological sex 
or um, their race or any different demographic information like that and how that can affect like results. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there are a couple interesting things you just mentioned. Like, first of all, considering the role of chromosomal sex or other lifestyle um, things that can influence someone's predisposition to Alzheimer's disease and dementia, that's a fascinating area. There's some really exciting work that's being done to disentangle that. Um, And then trying to understand how to interpret clinical data from these clinical trials is also non-trivial because maybe there Mm. might be primary endpoints that are not meant. So when you you read a headline saying, oh, a clinical trial failed, well, maybe there were some secondary endpoints that did seem promising. And especially like what I'm really excited about is the role of the immune system in Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So as we think about these new clinical trials and what biomarkers are they looking at, maybe there's a lot of promise that we can dig into if we have a more fine-grained or targeted approach to understand what to look for. Yeah, definitely. Recently, like in the news, they've mentioned how like, I think for the last couple of months, they've mentioned a couple like drugs that seem promising. Can you explain some of these drugs and if they are effective or not? Yeah. So I think you're referring to like uh, lecanumab and aducanumab. Um, These are drugs that are called monoclonal antibodies, and they are designed to target species of amyloid, which is that peptide that I told you is produced by uh, the brain, probably mostly by neurons that forms those dense core plaques and can be toxic to neurons because those peptides can cause mm-hmm. neuronal toxicity. And uh, that's one of the major clinical hallmarks uh, uh, in postmortem brain when a pathologist diagnosed Alzheimer's disease. And in 1906, when Alois Alzheimer was first clinically characterizing a patient with what we now know as Alzheimer's disease, those amyloid plaques were the hallmark of it. So that was what has led for many, many years to this amyloid cascade hypothesis. Mm. And part of the idea clinically to treat this would be if we can get rid of the amyloid and stop the progression of the whole cascade, then maybe we can preserve those vulnerable neuronal circuits and you know, help hopefully have improved cognition. So these new monoclonal antibodies are supposed to work by getting into the brain somehow, and then binding to those amyloid particles, and then being cleared. And that can help the brain potentially by removing that those toxic particles. There has been a lot of promising clinical results from these, as you mentioned. And I think that's why there's so much excitement in the field. If we have this new and very effective way of clearing amyloid from the brain, we could have you know a new way to treat Alzheimer's disease. And so that's the gist of how those drugs are working. The reason people are really excited about it is because we've just been faced with failure after failure of so many clinical trials. So these successes from the antibody-related approaches Mm -hmm. say, hey, maybe there is some promise to this amyloid cascade hypothesis. There are, I think, some skeptics who are cautious to interpret some of the clinical results of these studies, perhaps because maybe there's a statistical difference in the preservation of cognition from some patients. But in reality, for a caregiver, that change in cognitive performance may not really be noticeable. So maybe more clinical trials are needed, bigger clinical trials are needed. And at the end of the day, is it really going to affect a caregiver's um, experience taking care of a patient with dementia? Maybe, maybe not. So that's why perhaps there's more research that needs to be done. And then I think there are some cases with patients that are on these monoclonal antibodies that might have some severe side effects. So for example, one of the pathological um, manifestations of aspects of amyloid is it gets stuck in the blood vessels and can, it's called cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And so maybe if you are getting rid of amyloid in those yeah. parts of the brain or along blood vessels, you might be causing 
structural problems with your brand because maybe that plaque is actually being somehow protective. And so if you get rid of it, you might have brain swelling, edema, problems with uh, vascular supply. That's why a couple of patients have had um, some serious um, problems related to the blood vascular yeah. system. But I think overall, we should be fair and, and objective about the clinical results that we get from these. I do think that they're they're very exciting for the field, especially for, you know, for all the Alzheimer's mm-hmm. researchers, because we've had so many challenges having drugs that seem to be effective in patients. But it's also opening up new ways that we can think about, okay, what else besides amyloid might be contributing to brain health? And how can we leverage what we know about these amyloid therapeutics to develop next generation uh, molecules? Would these drugs like be able to repair any neuronal damage that happened? Or is it just removing the amyloid? I think the way they work right now is they're just removing the amyloid. But maybe mm-hmm. by removing the amyloid, you would prevent that amyloid from killing neurons. So possibly it's preventative from those uh, neurons that would fall prey to the toxic amyloid <laughs> particles. And then I think there's other ideas in the field of how can we learn about the molecular properties of these neurons that might be vulnerable to dysfunction and degeneration and figure out a way to preserve them. Um, and then on the other hand, maybe those are neurons that are not good anyway, need to die, and we should not try to focus on preserving those vulnerable circuits. Yeah, kind of on that note, um, a lot of the times when we think of like cures and treatments, we think of drugs or medicines or vaccines or something like that. But um, there's also like non-invasive treatments um, that could be used as cures or just to help treat different um, diseases. So what are kind of like some of the benefits for non-invasive versus invasive treatments? Yeah, so I think you're getting at the non-invasive light and sound stimulation from the Scilab. I want to put that into context with some other non-invasive types of approaches to treat Alzheimer's disease, because those I'm so passionate about the data used to support the behavioral interventions that could be used for dementia patients. So one is sleep. Sleep is um, very important. We know that if you have perturbations in sleep, you might have increased risk for Alzheimer's. So do everything you can to have healthy sleep. And healthy sleep means uh, non-fragmented sleep, um, which means you go to sleep, you stay asleep, and then a regular circadian cycle. So you're going to sleep at the same time, you're trying to wake up at the same time. I think there's a lot of data supporting how problems with sleep might be risk factors for dementia. And we know in mouse models that if you mess with a mouse's sleep, you can impair a lot of its cognitive uh, function and uh, susceptibility for certain models of Alzheimer's disease. And then there are other factors like exercise can be really important. We know that when you exercise, your neurons are releasing um, BDNF, um, which is an important neurotrophic factor that supports the health of new synapses. And so those are also factors that we know could be beneficial for uh, preserving the aging brain. And in mouse studies, we know that mouse models of Alzheimer's do better when they have, for example, like a treadmill in their in their cage. Mm. So there are a lot of things that are non-invasive that I think could be, uh, that we're trying to understand what uh, about it in a cellular way, these non-invasive things like um, sleeping right, exercising right, are doing for the brain health. And another part is really important social relationships. We know mm-hmm. that if you're uh, all alone and not talking to people, maybe not having healthy social connections, perhaps that could be putting your brain at risk for dysfunction. And we know that in mouse studies, if you keep a mouse, um, which are very social creatures like humans, um, all by itself in a cage, then that mouse is going to have a lot of problems. It's going to have emotional problems. It's going to perform worse on tasks that involve uh, learning and memory. And there's going to be decay of 
certain kinds of structures on neurons called dendritic spines that receive synaptic input. And I think the same is true in cases of aging and dementia, that if you have yeah. a patient or a mouse that is all by itself, it's going to have basically uh, accelerated pathology. So mm -hmm. I think that's why we want to think holistically about how we can use non-invasive behavioral interventions. Oh, well, yeah, I just kind of wanted to say that um, yeah, I've definitely seen that with like my grandma because she got diagnosed with Alzheimer's like right before the pandemic shutdown happened. And then like as soon as we came out of it, you could tell that her cognitive abilities had kind of declined a lot because she just hadn't been able to talk to too many people and she was just kind of stuck in the same spot for like a year or so. So yeah, I definitely like see that like social aspect. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think the pandemic has given researchers a lot of tractable opportunities to explore how absence of communication might have affected certain cognitive traits, and I think has prompted a next generation of the field of isolation um, studies to understand how your brain might be different after being in a period of isolation for a long period uh, for a long period of time. So yeah, I definitely think that understanding the way different neuronal circuits might be engaged by social um, activity and how that influences the brain's learning and memory centers in the case of dementia and Alzheimer's disease is really exciting and really important. Can you continue about um, like genus and that sort of work that's being done at the Scilab? Yeah, so this project um, began with the observation that your brain has large-scale neuronal rhythm. So if you were to just put implants on your brain, you would be able to detect electrical activity. And then researchers have studied how different patterns of large-scale neuronal networks emerge during certain behavioral states. And we know, for example, you have different brain rhythms when you're sleeping or when you're awake or when you're actively concentrating. And then within those um, behavioral states, you can get more fine-grained. And if you look broadly at these brain rhythms, you can subdivide them up into different brain rhythms, and people have given them different names. And one of those names is the gamma rhythm, and that means uh, neuronal activity that is occurring between 30 to 80 hertz, and that's called the low gamma range. And for both mouse models of Alzheimer's disease and for human patients, this gamma rhythm is disrupted. Um, we're learning more and more about what that disruption actually means, but I think it's safe to say that in patients and mouse models uh, associated with Alzheimer's disease, these neuronal networks are impaired, and the brain's ability to have these long-range oscillations that are promoting synchronization of different brain rhythms are disrupted. Okay, that's the first observation. Now we want to know, can we try to boost certain brain rhythms? And in 2016, this study from the Scilab in collaboration with the Boyden Lab used a technique called optogenetics, which is where you can use a combination of genetic molecular strategies to make neurons fire at a very specific pattern controlled by the user. And this is controlled using light. So you can flash a light at whatever frequency you want. And the idea is that the neurons are going to follow that light stimulation. So Based on the idea, hey, we want to improve gamma rhythms, they decided on using 40 hertz because that's sort of the center of the low gamma band. And then they used the optogenetic strategy in a mouse model and tried to increase 40 hertz neuronal power. So what they found, first of all, was that the optogenetic strategy worked, and that was consistent with a lot of papers in the field at the time. And what was pretty surprising was that using the 40 hertz stimulation in mouse models attenuated pathology. And this was not true during 
lower or higher frequency stimulation. So there's something special about the gamma band in promoting the mm. reduction in pathology. Okay, so we know that we couldn't really use optogenetics in patients yet, maybe sometime. And I think there's a lot of really exciting work thinking about how we could use optogenetics in a non-invasive way or using different kinds of light, like far red light. Um, but right now we're not gonna plant, implant an optical electrode into a patient. So what are ways that we can manipulate neuronal rhythms? Well, one thing that we've known for many, many years, in fact, I found a paper from, I think it's from um, 1934, um, that showed that you can use a uh, photic stimulation at a specific frequency, and that can induce the same frequency of uh, neuronal activity as the stimulation. So in other words, if you're presenting a light that's blinking at, say, 10 hertz, you can get the brain to have neuronal activity at 10 hertz. And uh, there's a couple of landmark studies uh, where you can do this in many different mammalian systems, including humans. And if you were to record in multiple brain regions, whatever the stimulation of the non-invasive light is, you can achieve the same uh, recording from the neurons at that frequency. So at the time, during this early work in the Scilab, Emory Brown, who works at the Pickhour Institute, he's an MD-PhD who studies um, anesthesia, consciousness, he has this access to uh, great clinical populations, had this idea, could we use something as simple as non-invasive light stimulation to achieve neuronal response? And we found the answer is yes, um, consistent with many, many um, decades of work showing that this photic stimulation induces neuronal activity at that same stimulation. So what they found is you can use 40 hertz light stimulation, so literally just an LED blinking 40 times per second, and that causes neuronal activity to respond in the same frequency. So the neurons in the hippocampus, which is that brain region responsible for long-term memory, then you can have the neurons fire at, uh, you can have a global population uh, respond at 40 hertz. So there's been some new research suggesting that it's maybe more complicated than that. Maybe it's not a single neuron firing at 40 hertz, but overall, the population of neurons seems to respond at this frequency stimulation. Okay, so then we have this non-invasive sensory stimulation set up. We induce the neuronal activity in the brain. What happens to the pathology? Well, in that 2016 paper, um, the members of the Scilab showed that it attenuates the pathology. So this is very exciting. And this has been repeated in a couple different contexts. One way it's been extended is you can use a combination of other sensory modalities. For example, you can use auditory stimulation, and that can also induce 40 hertz auditory stimulation induces 40 hertz neural activity in the brain. You can combine the light and sound so it's multi-sensory 40 hertz stimulation. Um, we just had a paper um, showing that you can use tactile stimulation, so you have basically a vibration that the mouse's paw can go on or the whole body in some cases where the cage is on a vibrating platform, which is basically a speaker. So a lot of different ways that you can use sensory stimulation to modulate the neuronal activity and uh, the downstream pathology. And that's the that's the idea. And so then this has been tried in clinical populations um, and some very preliminary work from our lab suggests that this might First of all, induce neuronal activity at 40 hertz in multiple brain regions, including in the deep brain regions, and it might be helping preserve aspects of cognition and the way neurons can communicate through long distances from the brain. So there's a lot of work to be done to understand the cellular biology that is explaining, first of all, why is it that neurons can have a response to a sensory stimulation at the same frequency? 
And second of all, how on earth does that change pathology related to Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, that's so cool. It's so interesting to see like all this amazing innovation occurring right now with Alzheimer's disease. And yeah, it's just so cool to see all that happening. Yeah, I agree. It's so exciting to be in the field right now. I think um, there are so many different ways that people are thinking about it in a really creative way. And it's so cool how people have the uh, really interesting tools at their fingertips to test hypotheses that we've had for many years. And now we can explore their relevance to Alzheimer's disease. And this is contributing to new pathways that we might be able to therapeutically target. Do you have any advice for um, someone like me who is interested in pursuing like neuroscience research or just research in general? Yeah, I say just go for it. I think follow your heart if you're passionate about it. Um, think it's really important to trust your instinct. And if you feel that call uh, in your gut, you have to, you have to listen to it. And I think it's, a uh, it can be tricky um, to get into research. It can be uh, really hard. There are definitely long days in lab where your experiments aren't working, or you're doing experiments that take a long time and you're in lab late. Those are uh, definitely challenges. But I think in the Scilab, you see people there 24-7. It's insane. I will be in lab. For example, one time I couldn't sleep very well. So I was like, I'll just go to the lab and start imaging. So I was in the lab at like 3 a.m. or something. There were people in the lab. So people are really passionate about their projects. And I think it's because you don't want to do anything else. If you have this project you want to work on, you can't think about letting it rest. You want to get to the next step. And so that is why it's so exciting to be a researcher. And so my advice, if you're uh, thinking about getting into it, if you feel that uh, excitement about wanting to own a new piece of data and be the first person in the world to to know something about the universe, you have to, you respect that and try it out. Maybe, maybe try it and you don't like mm-hmm. it. Maybe you, you want to do something else. And I think that that's fine as well. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to satisfy certain interests. And so you're not going to know unless you try. So Try to, yeah, just think about it, read broadly when you get into undergrad, see if there's a way you can find a lab that might be willing to take you on as an undergrad. At MIT, there's this great program called Europe's um, for Undergraduate Research Opportunity Program. Um, I think there are a lot of ways that undergraduates can be involved in research. So depending on where you end up for, for your undergraduate degree, there are probably programs in place. And if not, then you can find researchers um, who whose work you might be interested in and maybe email them directly, see if they have space for an undergraduate. And I think getting into research um, early can be a big um, leg up to figure out if it's something you like, because you don't really get a feel for what research is like until you're actually in the lab. So I was really lucky to be able to see what research was like when I was an undergraduate and had some amazing mentors to show me how to keep a lab notebook and to do certain essays. And it's just, yeah, it's really fun. You just got to get your feet wet a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for 